Our sermon for this morning is based on Luke chapter 18, verses 18 through 30. Please stand for the reading of the gospel. A certain ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. Honor your father and mother. All these I have kept since I was a boy, he said. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, You still lack one thing. Sell everything you have and give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. When he heard this, he became very sad because he was very wealthy. Jesus looked at him and said, How hard is it for the rich to enter the kingdom of God? Indeed, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard this asked, Who then can be saved? Jesus replied, What is impossible with man is possible with God. Peter said to him, We have left all we had to follow you. Truly I tell you, Jesus said to them, no one who has left home or wife or brothers or sisters or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God will fail to receive many times as much in this age and in the age to come eternal life. This is the gospel of our Lord. Please be seated. Today, in one story, we see two lies of Satan refuted. And I don't really have much more of an intro than that for you, because the truth of the matter is, is that these two lies of Satan are two of the scariest, most damaging, most gospel-sapping lies that Satan can give to us. And depending on your season of life and and how things are going for you, you might fall victim to one or the other more frequently. And in our story, when we see those two lies presented, we see how Jesus uses the truth of the gospel to punch the teeth out of those lies. And so that's our plan for the day. That when Satan comes at us with these lies, whispering them in the back of your head, you're able to tell him, take a hike. We'll start with the first one. The first one that was believed by the man who was approaching Jesus today. And from everything we can tell according to our gospel today, we see the man approaching Jesus in a way that shows he's really excited. If you kind of hear that in, in the way that it's written, Jesus is, the man is really excited to go up to Jesus and he says, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? You might take those words as seemingly arrogant. What must I do to inherit eternal life? But I'm not necessarily sure that's what's going on here. I think what we might have in front of us is a man that is just genuinely confused. He knows the law. He knows his life. 
He knows that Jesus is a good teacher. And essentially what he's doing is he's going to Jesus and saying, all right, please make sense of this for me. What do I need to actually do to inherit eternal life? And so Jesus responds to him. He doesn't respond to him answering his question right away. Instead, he, he attacks something else first. He says, why do you call me good? Only God is good. And with this phrase, he's really doing two things. One, he's trying to point to him and say, hey, guess what? I'm God. If God is the only one that's good, and I am the one that is good, that you can tell is good, truly, truly good, then you must be talking to God. And the second thing he's trying to do with that phrase is, he say, is he's saying, and guess what? You're definitely not God, which means you're not good. And that had to have been tough for that man to wrestle with right away because what Jesus was doing was he was poking a hole in the, the lie that was of that day and the lie that we see persist in our times that human beings are basically fundamentally Genuinely good. And Jesus is saying, if you are not God, then how can you say you're good? You see, Jesus is using the law in order to try to put this man on the right track so that he can actually understand who he is himself. And so he goes on, he says, you know the commands. You shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony. Honor your father and mother. And maybe we would think one of those commands would have made him go, yep, you're right, I haven't done all those things. Then maybe he would look at his life and he would go, you know, I definitely haven't done this quite as well as I thought. I need something else. But that wasn't his reaction. His reaction was, all these I've kept since I was a boy. Since I was a boy, he was wrong. So Jesus kept working on his heart. The guy wanted to do everything himself. He wanted to win. He wanted to earn. He wanted to gain salvation by himself. That's what we see in the what must I do to be saved. And so Jesus goes one step further and makes sure that the guy knows that although he's willing to give a lot to God, he's willing to give obedience to those commandments to God, he's not quite willing to go the whole 100%. Sell everything and follow me. This is Jesus speaking against that first lie of the devil. That lie that says, with mankind, salvation is possible. That with you and I trying our hardest, doing our best, working our tails off, we can earn our way to heaven. And the biggest concern about that lie, the thing that makes it most dangerous is because it comes from a place of earnestness. It comes from a place of somebody that actually looks at God and says, I want to be just like you. I want to show my love to you. I want you to look at me and say, well done. That's why that lie is so dangerous. Is because by all accounts, we look at it and we go, that's coming from a good place. 
And maybe we wouldn't be so bold as to, to go up to Jesus and when he rattles off all of the commandments to say, oh yes, all of those, all those I've kept. But when we hear the commandments of God, when we hear the law preached to us, when God is saying, you are a sinner, are there times when, when we open the word or when we sit in our churches that we nod along and go, yep, God, you tell them. You tell all the people around me their sins. Yep, you got them with this one. You got them with that one. God, way to go. You let them have it today. That's how that shows itself. It shows itself in that pride that, that maybe shows us that, that we can actually do it by ourselves. That, that when God says you are saved, our first thought isn't, why, thank you, God. Thank you for doing it all for me. Our first thought is, all right, how can I get myself into this story of salvation? How can I work my actions and my deeds into my justification so that I can at least share some type of part of the credit for me inheriting the kingdom of God? And it can take a lot of different forms. Sometimes it's just saying, yes, ah, thank you, Jesus, for saving me. But, you know, I had to accept you into my heart and all the people around me that aren't believers, that's because they weren't quite like me and accepted you. Or maybe we would say, ah, yes, Jesus, thank you for saving me, and that's because you knew I was going to be a really good servant, wasn't it? Ah, yes, Jesus, thank you for saving me. It's because you knew I was going to give a lot. I was going to be exactly what you wanted in a Christian. That's why you saved me, right, Jesus? And it's in those moments where the devil has us right where he wants us. Not depending on Jesus, but instead depending on ourselves. Because he knows as a 100% no-doubter fact that at some point, you're going to look at yourself and realize that's not it. It can't be it. And it's going to foster uncertainty and fear. And we're going to continue to depend on ourselves even though it's really not making us satisfied. It's not bringing us peace. And we would do that all the way to hell if we were left with our own devices. Why is it? Why is it when Jesus holds out grace, free and full forgiveness, no strings attached, our first response, that can't be how it goes. It's because we're embarrassed. Are we embarrassed that God would do this all for us? Am I embarrassed that I would need to be plucked out of the mud and the dust by a God who freely saves in my sinful nature, yes, I am. Yes, I am. I would rather stay in that mud and dust. I would rather cling to my, my tainted, useless, pathetic, sin-stained works than cling to the works of my God. And it's at this point that Jesus uses one of his previous phrases to stick his finger right in the eye of Satan and refute that lie. When he says, why do you call me good? Jesus answered, no one is good except God alone. 
No one is good except God alone. Jesus came here, and in this moment, he is living a perfect life. He is in the middle of a perfect life that he is living on our behalf. I don't know about you, but I think there's somebody, and maybe it's just something that you do when you're, when you're younger. Maybe as you get older, you, you don't think about this as much. But I definitely remember there was this person in my life that I thought was actually perfect. There's always those people in our lives that we look at and we go, I just don't feel like I ever see that person's sin. I got to think that there aren't very many problems in that person's life because it seems like they have it all together. I remember that was uh, Mr. Poggle. It was my, my principal in grade school who actually was a big reason that, that I'm a pastor today. I looked at Mr. Poggle and I thought he was perfect. He was perfect in the classroom. He was perfect at home. He was perfect outside of the classroom. He was perfect in church. That was my perspective. And yet he knew. He knew he was imperfect. Now imagine what it must have been like walking step for step, side by side with Jesus for 33 years of his life. Watching him actually be perfect. This guy said that he was keeping all of the laws perfectly. That do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not murder, do not give false testimony. All of those he said, I'm keeping perfectly. That wasn't true of that guy, but it was completely true of Jesus. From the moment he was lying in the cradle in the manger to the moment that he shouldered the cross on his way to Calvary, there was not one wicked action, not one wicked thought, not one wicked word, not one wicked urge, which is an impossible thing for us to think about, not one wicked aspect of who Christ was. As he's being hung on the cross and mocked by those soldiers, he just takes it and loves them. Take it like 20 years earlier when he's 12 years old. And Jesus was a normal kid by all other accounts. He had to have been mocked by the other kids around him. And he took it the only way that a savior could take it. And loved them. That's keeping God's law from the time you're a child. And Jesus gets to be that beacon of freedom that we look at. Who says, I've already kept to the law so that you don't have to stay underneath it. When God refutes Satan and says, no, no, these human beings can't do it by themselves, he doesn't stop there. He makes sure that you don't leave sad because he says, I've already done it for you. I've given my life. I've given my perfection for each and every one of them. But then when that lies solved, Satan tries to attack us with a different one. It's one that we see not in the, the man so much himself, but in the people that are standing around Jesus. Jesus goes on and he, he says, It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. So is it about money? Nope, you could replace just about any sin we could possibly think of with rich. Not that being rich is a sin or anything, but, but somebody that loves money. This was a man that clearly loved money. Somebody that loves another sin, that loves something more than God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle, which we all know is impossible. And that's why the disciples respond with, Lord, then who can be saved? And there it is. 
It's a place that we get to when we hear the law preached to us and we recognize we're a sinner. And that's where the devil wants to keep you. He wants to keep you in the pit of despair. He wants nothing more than for you to once again not look at God, but instead look at yourself and look at how much of a worthless, stinking sinner we are. And he continues to wag his finger in, his fa- in your face, and he says, this is you. This is what you are. And a God who loves good could not love you. Sometimes God's forgiveness is easier to understand and get comfortable with than other times. There are times where I can very easily believe that God has forgiven my sins. There are times when it's tough. When you look at your life and God says, I forgive you of all of your sins, and I go, no, God. You can't. You don't. You don't know me like I know me. You don't know my thoughts like I know my thoughts. You don't know my urges like I know my urges. You don't know my selfishness like I know my selfishness. God, you say you can forgive sins. That's okay, but I don't think you can forgive me. God looks at us and he says, yes, child, I know. I know all of those things, and I know even more about you. And I still forgive your sins. And he does exactly what he's been doing since he was in the Garden of Eden. He has been dragging camels through the eye of needles for years, for generations, since the dawn of time. God has been dragging camels through the eye of a needle, and he's doing it exactly today in your life right now. As he leads you heavenward. And in those moments where you say, even me? Impossible. God says, you don't get to say that. I get to decide how wide and long and high and deep my love and forgiveness are for you. And so you don't get to tell me what my forgiveness can and can't cure. 1 John writes a really, really great Great phrase about this. He writes, If our hearts condemn us, we know God is greater than our hearts. And he knows everything. When your sinful heart says, I can't be forgiven, God says, nonsense. My forgiveness is greater than your heart. And that's why we start every single one of our church services the way that we started it today with those words of sin and grace so that each and every Sunday we can knock the teeth out of the devil's mouth when he tells us that you are unforgivable. It's lies. Because it happened today. And it happened 2,000 years ago on a cross. That forgiveness was won and secured for you. And God said, don't let the lies of the devil drag you away from that assurance. And so he put brothers and sisters in each other's lives so that they could reassure one another with those words, I forgive you of your sins, and so does your God. 
so that we could reassure each other time and time again and go to God's word and learn ever deeper about the depths to which he sank to love and forgive us. Martin Luther writes a really good phrase about how wide and long and deep God's love is for us and how we respond to Satan when he tells us that we're unforgivable. So when the devil throws your sins in your face and declares that you deserve death and hell, tell him this, I admit that I deserve death and hell, what of it? For I know one who suffered and made satisfaction on my behalf. His name is Jesus Christ, Son of God, and where he is, there I shall be also. Your salvation, resurrected sinners, people who were dead in their transgressions of sins brought back to life? Impossible. But that's what God does. So how do we celebrate something that's impossible? I think I saw a good illustration of it uh, about eight days ago now when the Tennessee Volunteers beat the Alabama Crimson Tide and they stormed the field and they picked the goalposts up and they carried it through the streets and they threw it in the river. Maybe we don't do that with the church. But that's how we celebrate impossible. We allow it to consume us. To make it our motto, to make it our entire life, to make it the greatest thing that has happened to us. And when the, lie, the devil brings his lies to your doorstep, do what the Tennessee fans did. Chuck them in the river. Because nothing is impossible for your Savior. He specializes in impossible. The kingdom is yours now and forever. Because our God has never allowed impossible to get between you and him. Amen.